Well, I mean, I think the key thing is, like I said before, we're running out of time and we really need to have a solution. This has been going on for almost 20 years in Oakland, trying to find right. a ballpark for the A's. We need a solution that works and we need a new ballpark. That was Oakland A's president Dave Cavill in May 2021. We'll have the latest in that ongoing saga, plus an update on the Barcelona scandal and a look into how behind the scenes content has become crucial for leagues promoting themselves to Gen Z. It's Tuesday, February 21st. I'm senior writer Owen Poindexter, and this is Front Office Sports Today. The Oakland Days have their first spring training game on Saturday, but it's an open question how much longer they will be the Oakland A's. The team has hired lobbyists in Nevada, according to the Nevada Independent, which represents a significant step toward a potential move to Las Vegas. With Oakland bringing in a new mayor and two new council members in January, the team has taken the last couple of months to further their conversations with landowners in Las Vegas, as MLB Commissioner Rob Manfred said last week. The best way for me to answer that, John, is to say I think that um, the focus since I spoke to you in December really has been on Las Vegas. For at least a couple of months, it seemed like the team had narrowed down its Vegas search to two sites, both near the Las Vegas Strip. One is the Tropicana site, owned by Bally's, yes, the same Bally's who owns the naming rights to the very financially distressed Diamond Sports Group. The other is the Las Vegas Festival Grounds, owned by Phil Ruffin. It's been a little unclear how serious the Festival Grounds pursuit is at this point. Ruffin and his representatives had said very little to the media, and at points in 2022 it seemed like it was out of the running, and then it was back in, so it's listed among the contenders until we know it's not. Now, the Las Vegas Review-Journal is reporting there is a third site under consideration, which is the land currently occupied by the Rio, which is close to but not on the Las Vegas Strip. The Rio is owned by Dreamscape Companies, which told the Review-Journal, quote, The company has been engaged in a dialogue about the Rio as a potential MLB ballpark site for the past several years, and it remains open to this idea. That kind of language of we've talked about it, we think it would be great, but it doesn't sound like anything is all that close to happening, that's been pretty typical of the Vegas side of this for the entire time, and that includes from the governor's office. Nevada has a new governor since the 2022 election. His name is Joe Lombardo. This is Joe. And he does not want to raise taxes to help the A's build a stadium. Clark County, which includes Vegas, did institute a hotel occupancy tax to come up with $750 million to bring the Raiders from Oakland to Las Vegas. Now Vegas is hosting the next Super Bowl. There isn't the same appetite for doing that for the A's. Lombardo's office clarified its stance on this with the vaguest possible statement one can make. They said, the Oakland A's or any other team or company looking to relocate to Nevada may or may not be eligible for a variety of existing economic development programs in the state. Joe Lombardo for governor. Last week, Lombardo was asked by the Review Journal about any other avenues toward public funding for the A's, and he said, quote, Those negotiations are so early in the process that it would be detrimental for me to even talk about any details. Right now, it's all been ancillary conversations. And yes, like the Oakland mayor, he only just started the job. But this quote from the end of January from Clark County Commissioner Michael Naft caught my eye. He said, quote, when the Raiders decided to come to Las Vegas, they had a clear plan. You had a clear body that was tasked with assessing the worth and the value, and they committed to the destination. I have not seen that from the Oakland A's at any level, and it's not really our job to go out and beg them to come here because we have earned the reputation of the greatest arena on earth. 
I have been tracking this story for at least a couple of years, and I think I'm among the most optimistic people for Oakland that I know of, and a big part of that is that the A's have never seemed especially gung-ho about actually moving. Their lease in Oakland expires after the 2024 season. They could be playing in Vegas in two years. Manfred waived their relocation fee. Developers are welcoming them, but they are also only just starting the process of looking into public funding options there. And Manfred wants to maintain a precedent of teams receiving public funds when they build new stadiums. And I've gotten the opposite vibe in Oakland. I think the best example came last year when the A's sued a metal shredding company called Schnitzer Steel in an attempt to classify the waste that Schnitzer produces as hazardous. Why? Because Schnitzer operates very close to where the A's want to build a new ballpark in Oakland. Now, they, they lost the suit, but it struck me that they even tried. Because would you really go to the trouble of doing that just to gain a little more leverage in Nevada? Maybe, but we're not seeing anything like that effort in Las Vegas. And maybe that's because they love Oakland and its delightfully crazy fan base, or maybe it's because if they can make Oakland work, they do a $12 billion development, which will include housing, retail, office space, parks, and if they go to Vegas, they're mostly just building a stadium. That said, Oakland still needs to come up with a lot of money. Here's Cavill in August. The city needs to demonstrate that they have the money for the off-site infrastructure. They have not been able to show us, the league, you know, even, you know, their own constituents, that they have identified the sources of capital. And they are about at least $200 million short right now. And so it's wow. very hard to take a vote until we know that they have the funding lined up. The tricky thing here is that Oakland doesn't want to spend its own money. It has around $375 million in grants for this project already from the state and other sources, and it has applied for around $140 million more. There's also talk of them raising another $150 million or so through a limited obligation bond. If Oakland can get close with the money, I still think they stay. But the clock is ticking, and if they do decide to go to Vegas, I think there will be plenty of people happy to make a deal. Let's take a look at the rest of the sports world. Things have only gotten worse for Barcelona. To review, they are accused of bribing referees through a consulting firm that was run by Vice President of La Liga's refereeing committee, Jose Maria Enriquez Negreira. Spanish publication El Mundo has uncovered documents from Negreira to Barca's president at the time, Josep Maria Bartomeo. In those documents, Negreira says, hey, keep paying my firm or I will reveal the scandal. La Liga president Javier Tabas has said they cannot sanction Barcelona for this because this ended in 2018 and they have to obey a statute of limitations of three years. But that's not the case for Spanish prosecutors who are investigating this whole thing. Barcelona is maintaining their innocence, and maybe they are. But if they are, someone went to great lengths to frame them. Looking elsewhere, around 61% of investors in A-Rod's SPAC Slamcorp have traded in their shares for cash. SPACs have quietly followed the same trajectory as NFTs. They got super hot in 2020 and 2021, and then people seemed to wake up one day and decide they weren't that into them anymore. It's a little more complicated than that, but the graphs follow a similar pattern. The Alpine Formula One team will supply engines for Andretti and Cadillac if that team is allowed in. So Alpine wants them into Formula One, McLaren, which works with Andretti in IndyCar, wants them in, but the other eight F1 teams are still not into the idea of having one more team competing for prize money and fame. Up next, I spoke to Joe Caparoso, president of Team Whistle, which is part of a behind-the-scenes media ecosystem working to make sports teams and leagues fun and appealing and relatable in an increasingly fierce competition for our attention. We'll have that conversation right after this. 
2000, 2008, 2022. When it comes to the economy, those are some scary years. Dot-com crash, housing crash, and the roller coaster we're going through right now. One thing is certain, it's a dangerous time to not know your numbers. But over 31,000 businesses have the confidence and clarity they need because they rely on NetSuite by Oracle, the number one cloud financial system. NetSuite gives you visibility and control of your financials, inventory, HR, planning, and budgeting so you can manage risk, get reliable forecasts, and improve margins. Everything you need all in one place. So, how do you prepare for uncertain times? The answer, NetSuite. NetSuite helps you identify rising costs, automate your business processes, and easily see where to save money. That's why 93% of customers say they improved their visibility and control when they upgraded to NetSuite. What are you waiting for? Right now, NetSuite is offering a one-of-a-kind flexible financing program. Head to netsuite.com slash frontoffice right now. netsuite.com slash frontoffice. netsuite.com slash frontoffice. Hey, Joe. Uh, How's it going? Good. Cool. Uh, So, yeah, if you want to just kind of, for starters, just give me the the spiel on what Team Whistle is, what do you do? Um, I'd be kind of curious to get that that basic rundown. Sure. We're a a sports and entertainment uh, media company that is built on positive, relatable, brand-safe content. We've been around for, I think, officially about 15 years. I've been here about 10 years uh, we evolved from being a, a large MCN network into really focusing on making our own IP and own original content uh, that is both distributed on the social platforms and also distributed in partnership uh, with a wide range of, of different brands domestically and internationally. At our core, we specialize in short and mid-form video content uh, within the sports and entertainment space that, again, emphasis on positive, relatable, and brand safety. And yeah, I feel like the behind the scenes thing, the like players like off the field, um, just kind of being themselves, uh, you know, something a little more spontaneous. I feel like that has has really taken off. I mean, I associate it with the drive to survive phenomenon, but obviously there's there's zillions of other examples, both pre and post uh, drive to survive. Yeah, we definitely lean into that being a sweet spot for where there's going to be an interest level. That's why we keep we always try to harp on uh, this relatability element in our in our content, and we found that resonates well with our audience and with brands. How do you make these seemingly untouchable athletes and online influencers and creators feel just like any other person and like people who go through the things that any other person goes through in their day-to-day life. And it's easier to capture that stuff and capture that those moments away from the field. You know, a pro athlete is not going to look particularly relatable when they're dunking over three people on a basketball court. But if you can get time with them when on their day off, uh, they're going fishing with someone in their family or they're just finding a different way to unwind. That's something that any person who has a job can relate to. So we've, really tried to make that a consistent thing, both in our own content. And then when we work with different leagues, different platforms, different influencers, to make that a point of emphasis as an area of content to really dig into. Yeah, this is a random example of that. Um, Alex Wood, he's a baseball pitcher. Like he's good, but he's not like a star or anything. Did some tweet some number of months ago about how he like 
made really bland tacos for his kids because his kids only eat bland stuff and then but they didn't want it so then he like he had to eat all the bland tacos and it, like i'm a dad and like i, I think about that like as, as am i and i, I my kids and it's like, they better before. eat this because like it's not that good for me um yeah exactly i mean that's a it's a perfect example and yeah i'm i being a dad as well i've been in that circumstance many times and there's there's it's one of the nice things about the accessibility that comes from all these social platforms. You get to hear and see a lot of the day-to-day -day stuff that all these guys and girls go through that we go through ourselves. And um, it, it's made for a lot of cool and interesting content opportunities over the past few years. And now it's just kind of figuring out what's the best way to package that, where it fits into to all these different platforms since they all change so frequently every every few years. Right. And you kind of, it, it is a tricky balance because I feel like, I mean, I, I kind of feel this way with Drive to Survive where like eventually it kind of started to feel like one of those reality shows where everyone's like acting like they're on camera all the time because they are, um, they're very aware of it. It's not like they're like, sneaking up on them to actually capture uh, truly spontaneous moments. And I feel like for me, that show eventually got to the point where it, um, it, everyone was kind of like acting a little bit scripted, even if it wasn't scripted. Uh, so I just feel like th there's always that balance of like, you want that spontaneity, you want these relatable moments, but you don't want to like, you know, stage a relatable moment or make it feel staged because then it, it's no longer relatable. Um, yeah. Yeah. You, you get away from that actual like authenticity, which is what ideally you're capturing in. And, and for us predominantly playing in the uh, unscripted space that, is something we always try to make sure we we capture both in even if we have sort of a, a loose sort of script and framing for a branded or original shoot it's important that we have sort of the full 360 captured beyond that sort of main video because we also want to naturally get some of the short form you know components for it that made more organically capture some of those some of those real moments that don't come off like someone knows that they're being filmed and we're finding more and more frequently, like that is part of campaign deliverables now. It's expected. It's not just give us a hero video and three 30 second cut downs to promote it. It's get us a mid form video, get us a handful of short form videos, get us a handful of things we could use on TikTok, shorts, reels. And it kind of expands the range of deliverables. And you have to be able to adapt your team on the ground to that and also get comfortable uh, shooting with different ranges of talent to get all of that that you need now. Is there a direction you see kind of um, sports and social engagement going right now? And we talked about authenticity. Is, is there anything else you'd throw in there in terms of kind of what what's on the horizon? Look, I, I think the short form is going to be a, a, the big story of 2023. I mean, just recently looking at what's popping for Premier League and for us, like I think like four of their top five videos that have popped and garnered the most views uh, have been shorts recently. And I think that's going to inform a lot of the style of content, um, how different shoots are organized. And I think seeing that arms race between YouTube shorts and TikTok and Instagram and Meta and how Snapchat also uh, evolves to uh, compete with that is going to be a really interesting thing to watch because I don't, I don't see that changing in the immediate future. future. I think it's going to be a big part of what we see in 2023. Um, and it'll be also, you know, again, always interesting to keep an eye how the different sports sort of evolve from a dis distribution standpoint, how 
how does YouTube take advantage of now having access to, to NFL rights and can they be as successful with it as Amazon? And does that lead to some different outside the box sort of creative campaigns and marketing partnerships uh, to create awareness and, and get people comfortable uh, with watching football on YouTube and not on CBS or Fox at one o'clock and four o'clock like they might've been for, for the rest of their life. So I think there's, there's a lot of moving pieces right now I think short form is going to continue to dominate a lot of a lot of the conversation just because of how much viewership and engagement is out there right now and how that is going to drive what brands and advertisers are interested in. Um, yeah, I'm just wondering if like it always seems like there's this like failure of MLB to like make its stars into like big celebrities the way um, most other leagues, you know, there's like you know, the you know, Joe Burrow, Patrick Mahomes, like there's like these names become household, even, even if like you don't know anything about the NFL. Um, whereas like baseball has kind of failed around that. Oh, wondering if you had any thoughts about that. Uh, you know, it's a challenge. They're very different sports where, you know, certain moments in baseball may not be as necessarily conducive. Certain highlights in baseball may not be as as conducive to getting shared around and going viral as quickly as something might on a basketball court or a football field. And I think, how do you lean in? Maybe not just with that top tier group of MLB players, like that next generation of MLB stars. How do you lean in to figure out more about them? What do they do outside of the sport? What else do they have going on that, that is relatable uh, are, you know, can you spotlight in how one of them, you know, is a huge fan of something else like you're seeing, uh, like with, with the Seagulls Super Bowl run, how do you tell the, the story about that? And it doesn't necessarily just have to be the top one or two players in the league. How do you lean into some of maybe the newer, younger, exciting players who are bringing some different energy to the game and again, encourage them to have that consistency of, of sharing more about themselves because it's going to help grow the game, make the game uh, feel more accessible uh, to a younger audience. So it's it's a bit of a more uphill uh, climb uh, with, for some sports than others, but it's all going to come back to how do you really capture the best personalities in the game and find a way to get them out there more frequently without it feeling forced. Cool. Thanks so much for, for chatting. It was very interesting. Thanks for listening. Send me your thoughts, questions, comments to today at frontofficesports.com or throw us a rating on whichever podcast app you're listening on. I will see it and I will appreciate it and we'll see you tomorrow.